0: I'm Susie Lavelle and you're listening to The Cinematography Podcast.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to The Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a programme about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman.
2: Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going?
3: It's going pretty well. How about you? Quarantastic. <laughs> yes, you can tell by my face on your Zoom window right now, we're still in quarantine.
2: We are still doing the quarantine show, and we are not alone, basically, every pod. You know what? Terry Gross is recording from her house. I should shut up.
3: You know, there are a bunch of revelers out in the world, though, right now uh, celebrating Memorial Day weekend, not in quarantine. So we're all going to discover really quickly here whether uh, it was good to stay home or if it was good to go out and party.
2: Yeah, it's not a, an argument that I intend to have on the podcast. But if anyone wants to know how I feel about it, feel free to stop by my Twitter or Facebook page because I'm not quiet about it there. <laughs> wear a mask.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, we're both in the wear, wear a mask and keep your butt at home club so uh, okay (laughs) hey Ben who's on the show today
2: it is Suzy Lavelle she is awesome she shoots a lot a whole lot of BBC television including things like Doctor Who and Sherlock and his dark materials and most currently she shot a show called normal people she's uh really high on style she does really stylized interesting stuff and uh she's got a fascinating story about how she got where she got spoiler alert it has to do with doctor who so if you're a big fan of doctor who strap in because Susie's awesome and she's got some doctor who stories
3: nice all right so uh close focus Let's talk about this uh, rumored document that will be published by the time uh, our listeners hear this. That's uh, coming from a collection of industry bodies, uh, IATSE, SAG, and, oh God, who was the third one? Who was the third group in that?
2: The DGA. The, The DGA. So as we record, you and I have not been given access to this document, but there is a document that is a white paper that's coming out. That's going to be safety standards for filmmaking under COVID nineteen. Now, my theory about this is, this will be jettisoned and shot into space. The second somebody under these strict guidelines ends up getting COVID nineteen, and you know, it's going to be sort of like I, I keep saying, it's going to be like the pornography industry, where the second we have one case of COVID nineteen, the whole industry is going to go on lockdown again. So uh, let's let's hope this works.
3: Yeah, So let let, let let's
2: hope. Um, <laughs> So And it should be released in the next couple of days. So by the time you're hearing our podcast, you should be able to, and we should even have the link in the show notes to the actual uh, white paper. So as far as we know, and the information that I'm getting is off of IndieWire by somebody named Chris O'Fault, and IndieWire claims to have read the white paper, that it's basically going to be tons and tons of uh, personal protective gear, a lot of training. (laughs) There's going to be A whole whole lot of work that we're going to have to go through just to even get to shoots again. There's going to be a lot of paperwork in terms of crew wellness. We're going to have to know the health of our crews beforehand. And it uh, recommends a one-time, this is a direct quote, it recommends a one-time nasal swab testing of all cast and crew 48 to 72 hours prior to start of production. Here's an interesting uh, news item I read. I don't know if this is really true or not, but apparently somebody is working on basically a breathalyzer for COVID-19 so you could breathe into a thing and they would know that whether or not you had it immediately that would mm-hmm. be interesting and v- and I would get one of those and I'd use it every day
3: yes that could really be a game changer for uh, some of these job positions where you have to interact with people in close proximity on a daily basis
2: yeah so here also from the article the plan recommends that productions rely on virtual meetings and writers rooms mm. so that's That's already happening. I'm working on a writing project right now, and and we're doing virtual meetings and writer's rooms. And uh, granted, it's just a staff of myself and one other person, but we're writing a project for an audio company, and it works the same. And a friend of mine who is a a showrunner for networks and Netflix and stuff, he's running a virtual writer's room right now.
3: Yeah, I think that there's going to be a lot more virtual meetings, at least for the next few months. If you have uh, Zoom fatigue, uh, strap in because there's more Zoom.
2: Yeah, if you have Zoom fatigue, just uh, move to Google or Facebook's version of Zoom (laughs) because it's the same crap. Uh, It's all the Um, same thing, yeah. I I keep wondering if like uh, when I was brainstorming my idea that I pitched you a few weeks ago about, uh, you know, creating like basically a first aid kit for COVID-19 protection that you could sell to productions. Sure. I was like, one of the things that we should have is like a a post-it note that says cleaned. So if you're in a set, like let's say you're in a bedroom set and the actor has to touch the dresser, the the, uh, art department can go through and Clorox wipe it all down or whoever's going to do it can make sure that it's completely clean and then put a thing on it so that everybody knows that's clean. And then like right before you shoot, you take it off. I feel like we need stuff like that because we're going to be, uh, you know, as I've said on the show many times, my wife works on House Hunters and she doesn't direct it anymore. She's a story producer on it. But when they're on the set, they're in people's houses, they're in in, in direct contact with, with regular old people, and there has to be a way to make everyday spaces that people go in make sure that they're all clean.
3: That kind of exists right now with uh, our cleaning company, actually, that comes in and cleans hot red cameras. Uh, they, they give us a little uh, thing to put on our desk. And uh, it's more like the opposite, though. It's more like this desk is dirty. Please clean. Or, hey, I'm in the middle of something. Don't touch this. And it's a little sort of like uh, laminated that's smart. piece of paper that was like clean desk or don't clean desk. So, so yeah, but I could see a, a bunch of those things are like you noticed know, uh, they're a little bit heavy, so they won't blow away if someone walks by quickly, and you know you can you can organize your stuff that way, especially if it's self adhesive in some manner.
2: Here's an interesting thing that uh, it also says in the IndieWire article is that the report does not talk about who is going to enforce this. So, in other words, these are self enforced guidelines. Meaning that sloppy ass film people like I'm like me, like me, I'm going to take it all on, uh, who are, who are slobs and can get caught up in the moment and drop protocols. Those are the very people who will be policing whether or not this happens. And again, I'm telling you that if on, and I'm only just naming this at total random, if, uh, you know, some grip on NCIS comes down with COVID-19, the whole industry is going to shut down again. Like we're all going to be super gun shy about this. And maybe the industry will contact trace itself and maybe that will be enough. I hope so. That'd be neat, but, uh, it's, it's going to be touch and go, I think getting started. And I'm happy to say that I won't be on one of the first crews that's going to be filming under these circumstances.
3: I have, uh, heard, stories from insurance companies saying that they won't insure some productions. They won't issue a certificate to productions that are shooting now in states that uh, are allowing productions to go forward. So anyone who's doing that is self-insuring. Now, that might be someone the size of a studio or a network who can afford to self-insure. But for many independent productions to go forward without insurance, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. And I would imagine well, my, that, that my could be- guess
2: is, th- is, is that this is going to put the kibosh on that because this is coming down from the governor himself. So Gavin Newsom is putting his stamp of approval on this and they're trying to get. Well, a giant part of the California economy going again.
3: Well, that, that's the goal. The goal, the whole point of this white paper that's being reported here is for Newsom and Cuomo and governors to say, yes, we're going to sign off on this. But for, there are productions that have gone into, that are they're happening right now in Florida. I know of another one that's about to start June 1st in Georgia. So, uh, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a few things that are starting to wake back up.
2: Oof. Well, I mean... I don't want anything bad to happen to any of them. So, you know, I, I, as I keep saying, I hope I'm wrong about what I suspect uh, is coming down the pike in terms of a spike in cases. I hope hope doesn't happen. I hope we've all been overreacting and uh, production can move on uh, safely. Now, that being said, I have felt from the beginning that once we had our hands around the crisis, there would be a safe way to go back to shooting. I mean, you, you see news programs and stuff like that, already shooting, you know, they do the same interviews. They're just uh, socially distanced. You know, the interviewer and the interviewee are, you know,
3: six to eight feet apart. Stuff like that will make a difference, you know. It, it's the same interview, except what used to be on a 35 millimeter lens is now is on, on an 85 millimeter lens.
2: I, I've been waiting for the appropriate time to make that nerdy-ass joke on here about <laughs> how, like, the real winners of this are the makers of longer lenses.
3: Dun-dun-dun yeah yeah that's a, that's a nerdy joke all right so Super should, nerdy. <laughs> should we get to the interview
2: uh yeah absolutely so here is suzy Lavelle,
1: the cinematography podcast interview
2: so uh here in cinematography podcast quarantine edition we are uh, speaking across the pond with suzy lavell thank you so much for agreeing to come on board and uh, and and talk about your career you've done you know so many amazing uh, shows a lot of a lot of uh, that I guarantee you we have tons of fans of so thank you for coming on uh, the first question that I that I like to ask I'm, I'm slightly modifying it because I, I think that I've been kind of uh, too strict in my in my formation of it so I'm going to open this question up and say you're given a script either to shoot or you're going to meet with the director about shooting it you know you're, you're up for a job what is the process in your mind where you start to turn the words into pictures what's where does it begin with you and you know my my stock question is is it composition or is it lighting but as we've been doing this i'm finding it's so much more for so many people so just where does it begin with you
0: Um, I think, you know, when I pick up a script, my first read is definitely just story. So I tend to read Mm -hmm. it quite slowly and really get into the characters and sometimes start to see visuals or start to work out the power dynamics of relationships and try and learn who the characters are. And then the sort of second read, which I do pretty quickly after the first one, I often start to, you know, start to broadly think of Images and start to collect references, um, which may or may not be used in the interview process. Sometimes I don't even bring them out when I meet the director Mm -hmm. because I really like to go in with an open mind and hear how they see a project before I put anything on it.
2: So when you're collecting those images, like, is there a specific kind of go-to source or is there, you know, do you tend to like looking at other movies or photographs or paintings or, you know, what, where do you draw the inspiration?
0: I guess like photography is a major one for me. Still photography, it's just one of my main influences and I can't help myself but buy endless amounts of photography books. So <laughs> that's, you know, a big place for me to start. And other movies always, but sometimes sometimes you know, when you're talking about tone and texture that it's helpful to go a bit deeper, go into fine art and yeah. So photography predominantly.
2: Are there specific photographers that you, uh, that you find are especially awesome for you to reference? Or do you like to just kind of start with like, Hey, I'm looking for, you know, pictures of forests and just look at, at, at anyone, you know, anyone and everyone.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's sort of project led that's where, you know, as a response to the script, I might in my head then think, oh, there was that photographer I saw. Where did I see that? And kind of backtrack mm-hmm. and find out the image, look at their catalogue of work. And it often comes that way or just flicking through books of because like, I often know the images. I just can't think where the, where I have stored them in my mind from. And so it's often just going through my books and um, finding them that way.
2: Interesting. Uh, so before we even really dive into, you know, your whole background and, and origin story, we, we kind of wanted to start by talking about your new TV series, uh, Normal People. And I'm actually gonna hand it over to Alana who has seen it. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, unfortunately. So she's gonna uh, hop on and ask you some questions.
4: Hey. Hey. Yeah, well, first of all, I was curious how you came to the project. Um, I came to the project. So
0: I was working, um, I, I have to say first, Lenny Abramson was a director that I always, you know, was super into. He was making features when I was learning to make films. And the first time I started to see his work, I I sort of couldn't believe that those type of stories were coming out of Ireland. I hadn't seen anything like it before. And, uh, you know, so I was a huge fan already. And then one day I was on set and went for lunch and checking my emails. And, you know, there was a bunch of how my agent used to list the jobs was a bunch of requests that had come in. And this was quite far down the bottom. And it was saying BBC Three half hour episodes, which I guess was traditionally could have been more comedy or more. And then I saw Lenny's name and I was like, oh, what's that? So I rang my agent straight away and I was like, that's a Lenny Abramson project. What is it? You know, tell me everything about it. And got the scripts pretty quickly from Lenny and adore. I think I only got one and two and adored them. And a Skype interview was arranged pretty quickly, so I didn't have time to read the book in that time, so I just concentrated on the scripts and had a sort of lengthy Skype with Lenny, which, in which we talked about everything, you know, not just that story, but all of his films, our sensibilities, um, filmmaking in general, what we were watching... And then it went very quiet for a while and um, I didn't hear anything else about the project. And then, but I had started reading the book and fell even more in love with the project. And then they got back in touch and said, look, can we do a, you know, meet in person interview? And I was, I'm from Ireland anyway. So they said, will you be home for Christmas? And an interview was arranged then. So I went to meet him just after Christmas and we sort of had a three hour discussion then. And by that point I'd read the book and I think I'd read, all of one to six by that point. And, um, and so, um, I really wanted the job then. Um, and I knew it would be hard to get, uh, I knew that there was a lot of people being considered for it. And, um, so I just really, really wanted it.
4: (laughs) Wow. So did you, when you met with him in person, did you come with um, some looks that you had in mind and some, uh, you know, did you have like a lookbook or, or some photographs or some influences? I had a,
0: I did, I always do this where I prep a sort of lookbook, but 90% of the time I don't take it out in the interview. <laughs>
2: why Why not though?
0: Again, it's that thing of just wanting to listen and not at that point just mm-hmm. making sure that I'm hearing how they see the project more than putting something on the project. And I suppose we met common ground in terms of tone by talking about other films and his films and and photographers and things like that.
2: Can, can I ask uh, which of his films were the ones that you found inspirational?
0: Um, the one that was kind of jaw-dropping for me uh, was Garage. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's um, set in the Midlands in Ireland and it's about um, a kind of outsider character in the village and it's, it was just such beautiful, simple, character-led storytelling, beautifully made with lots of mood and tone and it, I think... It went to Cannes, you know. it It was it went really big for an Irish movie, and I yeah, it was just wonderful. So that was the big one, and then I've loved everything he's done since. And I loved his first movie, which I saw after that, called Adam and Paul, which is sort of comedy about two junkies, drug addicts in Dublin, which is amazingly real and tender and beautiful film.
4: So when you had the initial meeting with him, too, did you guys discuss? The, one of the things that's very prevalent in the series is the intimacy and the, you know, very, you know, there's a lot of sex scenes in the show. So did you guys talk in depth about, you know, how that we, how you're we going to do that, how you're we going to handle it, how you're we going to shoot it? I would say
0: that the big thing for us was that we wanted to be in a place where we didn't handle it any differently than our normal storytelling to that story. So that that sex and what we thought was the truth of that sex was just making it part of their conversation, a continuation of the dialogue essentially um, for the characters and not wanting to be, you know, trying to get realism and truth from it, but also like for me, the book and the script were the most beautiful depictions of like first love, true love. So letting it be led by a sort of honesty, like where there was no hand of the filmmaker, or you don't feel suddenly, oh, we're doing a sex scene now and, um, yeah, so we, we, we tried not to split it off and treat it differently. Obviously, logistically, there was issues to be addressed within that of how we were going to achieve it. But um, tonally, we didn't want it to feel in any way different than how we chose to tell the rest of the story. Recently in the UK, we now have intimacy coordinators on set. And it was the first job I'd done with an intimacy coordinator. And so we were, myself and Lenny were wondering, how's this going to be? Like, do we have to talk through her to the cast? How's it going to work? So initially when she came over and had a session with the cast straight after we met up and we started talking about approach. And I was saying, you know, we really want to treat it as a continuation, like Lenny was, of The dialogue that's going on. And the the sort of method we found was we would go in and sit down with the cast intimacy coordinator, me, Lenny, the script supervisor, and the first AD, because we were going to shoot it with a super minimal set anyway. You know, light it from outside, try and be as unobtrusive as possible, as you can be being right close to someone with a camera. Um, And we ended up sort of saying, look, we're not going to worry about time. This is going to take as long as it takes. And we have got to get everyone comfortable. And a book, you know, uh, the Nan Golden photography books, which I think every art student in the world uses as a tone of reference to study, um, photography and camera. That be uh, the focus. puller had an original copy of uh, her book, Ballads of Sexual Dependency, which he brought to the set. It's a hard book to get, and so we ended up sort of all sitting on the floor with Daisy and Paul, and just looking at these photos and talking about blocking and truth and intimacy and you know blocking that felt real. Which then that was a really good thing to lead to the how like what how are we going to deal with hiding bits when we need to not hiding bits how far do we want to go for each section and you know Lenny's great at letting people talk and input and be free within that creative circle so it felt very gentle and open that all of us could could talk freely about these things and whether we found them beautiful or not or we wanted to do them or not so that book was just super helpful in terms of relaxing everyone and and letting us all know what each other was trying to do i suppose and then you know we also knew the first day would form our approach for the rest of the shoot in terms of doing it well them being comfortable us being comfortable the time it was going to take and all of those things so um yeah
2: I'm just curious, how does working with an intimacy coordinator impact the workflow on a set? Is it, is it like having a safety person for explosions or, you know, or gunfire or something? Yes, it, it's very
0: like the stunt coordinator end of things, I think. Or, or a choreographer. And that was a small, intimate set as well. So it felt very chatty in that process but it was very like that like we could say to her what we were trying to do and she was never trying to obstruct or stop it was all about the cast being comfortable consent happening um and everyone aware of what we could and couldn't do and also she helped us find a language to communicate those things that wasn't it wasn't silly you know like can you grab her ass you know or you know a a good language of (laughs) um of how, how to get through those scenes
2: I mean, it kind of seems like an obvious thing that we should have been doing all these years, uh, you know, because if anyone's ever shot a, a scene like that, it can be super awkward. But to have sort of a specialist who's there to help translate for everybody, just, sound, you know, you you wouldn't ask a director to choreograph a dance number if they weren't a choreographer. It's the same thing, really.
0: Totally. It's amazing we haven't had it. Um, and I actually found the experience of working with her wonderful. I think we all did. So, Yeah
4: what so what is in uh normal people what are some, what is some of your favorite experiences and scenes uh from the series
0: ooh um interesting i i guess i love just watching the characters grow and develop broadly over the whole series and i did mostly the first 6 episodes and then just bits of the other 7 to 12 so it, i mean it was so wonderful to get get to see the arc of their relationship and I loved working with that age group and it's set very close to where I'm from and broadly the whole job was wonderful and to be able to imi- like realise a book like that and I guess what was monumental was just realising how amazing Paul and Daisy were. That that was kind of bonkers, mm-hmm. like I, I went to a rehearsal and I'd seen the casting tapes and chemistry tests and all that. And then I'd seen him in an advert on the telly. But it, when I got to the rehearsal, we were all, it, they were rehearsing in the production office. And Lenny was like, come in in a few hours. And then I thought I was doing stuff and, you know, with the designer. And then went into the rehearsal and I just, I was jaw on the floor after the first take and I was first rehearsal and I thought, how is he blushing on cue? And the way the detail of their performance was just, I mean, it felt so real. I felt like I was standing in between two people having their first kiss. It was just like, oh my God, this oh, is amazing. Wow. Like I could feel his heart beating and her heart beating. So uh, it was wonderful. That, that actually
2: raises an interesting question because I, f- I find that a lot of people in the film world are a little anti-rehearsal and rehearsal is something you don't often get the the benefit of in, in television, you know, off, off-site, not on-set uh, conditions. Did they rehearse a lot of that show before, before shooting it?
0: Yeah, so I think Lenny had, I think it was a week rehearsing, but it was in and out, so they would go quite gently. It was at the production office, so it would be tied into costume tests, camera tests, and then Lenny would have them for three hours and run some scenes, and then they might come back to costume. And I think that his rehearsal process... You know, I don't think he brings it all the way to the place that we need on the day in order to keep it fresh. But just a lot of his rehearsal process is just talking about the scenes and characters. And I know that that process for him kind of informs how the dialogue's playing and whether he wants to adjust that. Does it feel real? So it's kind of a chance for them to try it out and check it all fits. And because it was very open to... Change as we were shooting it, like the dialogue could be moved at any time if an actor felt they wouldn't say that or it was too bit, you know. Um, it was very mm-hmm. organic that process right up until you know take five of the first setup.
2: So when, when you're sitting in on a rehearsal as a cinematographer, are you already kind of coming up with ideas about how you're, how you could cover it or. Totally. Or
0: or like what exactly is happening is the big thing for me, you know, and seeing how they should be framed on certain bits. And, and also because of the camera being handheld, you know, how I'm going to light it without just being in the way, like with with being able to be discreet and, you know, to keep the set as truthful as possible, not to have too much stuff, keep our footprint as light as possible to just allow the performance to lead it.
4: Yeah. Was the majority of the show shot handheld?
0: Uh, in my episodes, I'd say probably 80%. And then we had a really good steady cam operator that we hired full time, but he only had a team on B-camera days. So when, so we were single camera and, if it was a steady cam shot i'd just pull back and then he would do his stuff which was such a great way to work because it means i can be watching it and you know I, I really enjoyed that and we were lucky to have him especially when we didn't use him all the time um but the stuff he did was wonderful
4: also i noticed like a lot of it is very natural lighting like i it seems like very minimal lighting probably for a lot of it
0: yeah I guess my kind of approach to the lighting was like have as little amount of stuff in the set as possible in terms of certainly in the day scenes and just use a polyboard and then the biggest light I can get outside if I can get it in and, and just work with the position of that through the day. Yeah, so trying to imitate the, the re- most real light and also just letting the aberrations of the light and the lenses do the work a little bit like, a light, like using a lot of lens flare
2: I'm always curious about when uh, when you're going for a naturalistic look like that because it takes as much work often to create a naturalistic look as it would to ta- to create a very stylized look. So like what are the challenges that somebody facing that kind of a setup should be thinking about?
0: Yeah, I guess coming from a place of really looking at light and find, like being able to go to the location before you shoot in it and look at how the the light really works in there, especially with those big Georgian houses that Marianne lives in when she moves to Dublin. And then I'd say, that, you know, if you're trying to emulate sun, just get the biggest light you can and put it as far away as you can, like the sun <laughs> does. Um, and, you know, just work with angle and direction of a single source. And then the night work, I tried to make it all feel like it was lit from the practicals in the house and so for us, that was just building little boxes of diffusion and putting bulbs that were the same bulbs that were in the practicals alongside and being able to move those about and attach them to the lights. And, uh. and also, I guess you rely heavily on the design department to provide you with enough pracs to do that, um, that sort of lighting and great net curtains. And, you know, we were lucky with some of the Georgian locations having shutters, which made it very quick and easy to be able to contain the light better in a more invisible way.
2: So let's go back a little bit and and just kind of talk about your background. Again, kind of my stock question, but I think it's important. When was the first moment that it occurred to you that cinematography was something you were interested in doing?
0: Well, I grew up in Ireland and left quite young to go traveling. And when I was 18, I spent a couple of years in Australia. And at that point, I'd started to sort of pick up a photography camera and take pictures. And then I decided I wanted to study photography and went to um, college in Edinburgh doing photography where part of the photography course was a film course and during that I thought oh god I'm very much enjoying making films so used films I made there to go to art school and that's where I sort of discovered the camera department people on the film course making films and As soon as I just offered to work on their short films or graduation films, I gravitated to the camera department very, very quickly. And just there's something with the camera department. You just realize you're meant to be there, I think. And it's interesting now I watch it with trainees and stuff that come on board and you just know it's a a lifelong choice and joy that uh, they're about to undertake
2: So what was the filmmaking state of Ireland as you were growing up there? Like, did you see it around you at all? Or, you know, were you aware of Irish uh, movies or, or I mean, obviously, they make a lot of movies in the UK in general, but.
0: Um, like how, how much was it something that you saw in your daily life? Uh, very little of, I would say. And I'd say that I didn't even really know till I left Ireland or, or even went, till I started doing photography, I wasn't really aware of other roles on film sets apart from director and producer. I mean, th- we had some great Irish movies coming out in that time, but I didn't always get to see them. And yeah, I, did, I was I had very little exposure to the film industry until I left.
2: So you are excited about the, uh, camera department. And obviously there are people who have amazing careers in the camera department as focus pullers, clapper loaders, et cetera, et cetera, DITs today. What drew you specifically to doing cinematography instead of just working in the camera department?
0: I guess starting to make films and tell stories in that time. You know, when I was at that art school, I was crewing other films and trying to work as a loader professionally in London. And then started making films with friends and did a graduation project and just really fell in love with telling stories and what a camera could do and visual storytelling. And I actually didn't think, you know, even when I left that college, I didn't think I would have a chance to become a DOP. And I moved to London and was loading and kept making films with my friends and then a couple of people had said why don't you try and apply to the film school with this film we'd made together in art school and um yeah applied kind of thinking oh well I might I probably won't get it but I'm going to try anyway and the process of that application really encouraged me I started shooting more and the mm. the process was quite lengthy and then got in and was delighted <laughs>
2: So you studied you studied specifically cinematography there.
0: Yes, at the National Film School in London. I think we've talked to a few people who've who've gone there. Actually. Yes, um, and cool. Jakob Era he went there. Oh, a good few more. I just can't think who at the moment. Did Charlotta? Yeah, Charlotta did, guy? of course. Yes, she was. Yeah. She left when I started, um, but of course she did. Yeah.
2: Well, I always think it's interesting because, you know, we're we're living in an era now where you you could shoot probably as many films with a DSLR that you picked up as as going to film school and being in that, you know, that cauldron, that, like, you know, obviously I have my bias cuz I also went to film school, but like uh what do you think you got from going to a film program as opposed to, you know, just kind of picking up and shooting stuff on your own?
0: Um I I think, you know, learning how to work with people and tell other people's stories. And I guess, you know, with the National Film School in London, you do a range of stuff. So as it, there's six when I was there, there were six doco directors, six drama directors, six animation directors, and you work with all of them. And I think oh, wow. that, that which is amazing. And you do you get to do a graduation project from each one, which is, you know, a well funded short oh, or wow. a funded do- doco where my documentary one, we went to Berlin for six weeks and made a kind of a, a film that was kind of Trying to do invisible filmmaking and be very discreet. So the the sort of stuff we got to do was so broad that it was unbelievably formative. And just learning, how, like, like it really felt like a mini version of the shooting world. So you, ha- and often like the gaffers and grips are brought, are real working gaffers and grips that give their time for a small fee to come in and crew your work. Oh, wow. So it really teaches you how to start dealing with departments and starting to understand what those technical departments need from you, and and also the access to filmmakers was incredible. The people we had giving us lectures were just amazing. You know from. All, like my tutor was Brian Tefano, who was an amazing, amazing cinematographer in the UK who'd done like train spotting and Quadrophenia and these sorts. And he was just our tutor, everyday tutor. So he was incredible. And then their guest speakers were, you know, we had operating with Sean Bobbitt and um, Billy Williams teach us. So just, yeah, incredible. So
2: after school how did you uh transition into into doing uh, your career and I, I should say too like uh, much of your career is is uh television. Did you know when you were in school that that was the direction you wanted to go into or was that just, you know, did that evolve on its own?
0: Well, um a bit of a long story, but I'll tell you. Anyway. Go for it. that's um, what we're here for. So basically, I, when I left the film school, I guess what i realized when i went to the nfts was i felt like i was one of the most there was six cinematographers five guys and me and i felt mm-hmm. like i was the most inexperienced there you know a week in, we we all looked at each other's work you know the what the the work you used to get into the film school so your show real and i remember sitting in the cinema and going oh my god that one's on 35 mil they've lit a church they've got 18ks oh my god and, <laughs> And my one was coming up last and it was, you know, a tiny film made with my friend directing and his cousins were the actors. And, you know, I I was like, oh, God. So during the process of film school, I I feel like I learned so much. And, you know, but when I came out, I didn't feel like I could walk onto a set and be like, I'm the DOP. I I felt like there was still learning and practice to do. So I am. started doing as many shorts as possible and to earn money i was kind of getting offered corporate jobs which i didn't really enjoy and because of the art school i went to my tutor from there who was great to me put me in touch with some fine art filmmakers so three artists i ended up making you know working relationships with that i pretty much shot all their films for about 10 years and still shoot some of them and they were pretty ho- high profile artists based in the UK that got very good budgets and usually shot on film and they always were quite interesting like they would project so we'd shoot something on 16 mil and project it through a looped projector that was part of the art installation that would show the same piece of film twice on two screens they were always quite interesting or I did another oh, wow. one on a cargo ship where Myself and the director called Rosalind Nashashibi went on a cargo ship for three weeks with 30 rolls of film and a sound man and just lived on the cargo ship and she made the film out of it. And so that for me was a really great way to sort of be able to earn money and hone my craft without having to do sort of corporates. I love doing music videos, but they were very hard to get. And I sort of didn't know a lot of people doing them and eventually and then got to do shorts in Ireland. And the Irish short scheme is quite good. It's quite well funded if you get on the right short films and um, got my first feature from that. So the first one I did was like called 100 Mornings, a sort of post-apocalyptic four handers set in the house which is quite relevant at the moment basically they were in isolation <laughs> um, it feels yeah. a lot like this. I was talking weirdly. to my partner this morning saying jesus <laughs> we, we should watch that again but they're you know they they don't have stuff so there's no deliveries there's no fuel there's no so sort of society breaks down and so that did quite well for me um in ireland and from that i got another feature called the other side of sleep which went to can and from oh, that, wow. I was in Cannes and starting to get noise from... I had a very young baby at the time. I think we went to Cannes with a seven-week-old. It was mental. Oh, um, dear Lord. Yeah, it was crazy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Broke with a seven-week-old in Cannes. Like, I remember oh, we even man. forgot the baby blanket. And, you know, we were trying to buy one on the street. And it was like 700 euros for a blanket during Cannes. Was oh. very funny? But um, from that, <laughs> yeah, I started to meet agents
2: I mean, that's huge playing Cannes because, I mean, there really aren't that many movies that play Cannes no, every year. No, it, it,
0: it, I think it was the director's Fortnite scheme, but it was a wonderful and wonderful to have an Irish film there. And a small movie is like yeah. 1.4 budget euros, which at the time was like less than a million UK. Um, uh-huh. It was wonderful. And then, yeah, came back really incentivized to kind of, be able to get work met agents so at this point I know I did not think at all I was going to be going into TV like at all and then um, met with a bunch of agents ended up going with one of them and she got a cold call from Doctor Who saying look uh, we've got a single episode block so just a single episode none of it's set in the TARDIS so it's it's no established locations it's all set underwater in a submarine so I guess the risk was quite low for production to take <laughs> a DP new to TV shooting. So she sent a bunch of reels and the director picked mine and then I was interviewed over the phone. Wow. Yeah, bonkers. Um, and
2: I mean, did you grow up with Doctor Who? Was it like... No, it... I
0: didn't, but my partner's English. In Ireland, it wasn't mm. as big as it is in England, but my partner's Got family it. like would sit down for the Christmas special, all of them. Christmas Day would stop and they'd all be, you know, Doctor Who... Christmas specials on next. I mean, so, it's
2: it's huge over here. I know people who would who would be freaking out to to think I about love working I I on the yeah.
0: Well, I actually, when you work on it as well, it makes you a fan sort of. It's funny, um, because you you learn that I don't know, there's such lovely things behind it, and um, in terms of yeah, fandom and so I had the interview and. I felt like I did really badly in the interview. It was over the phone and I was going to a short film set and the taxi went the wrong way and I, I just shouldn't have done an interview in a taxi. And I got to the set and I said to the focus puller, who is actually the focus puller on normal people. I've worked with them a lot and he's wonderful. I said to him, geez, I made a mess of that interview. And he said, ring them back. I was like, I can't ring them back. He said, ring them back and tell you you made a mess of it. And so I thought, God, maybe he's right. So I texted the producer and I said, I feel like I made a mess of in the interview. Can I get another chance? And he just said, don't worry about it. And I think I'd already talked to the director at that point, And I thought the job was gone. And sort of within 15 days, I was standing in prep on Doctor Who. Wow. Bonkers. And
2: who was who your doctor?
0: Um, I had Matt, first of all, and then Peter. Yeah. So I, did, I ended up going back a few times. And so, um, uh, it was Jenna's first episode that I did shooting. It wasn't the first one she was revealed on, but it was her wow. first episode shooting. And oh wow! And Matt was coming to the end, or it was his last series.
2: Was that your first job ever on a TV show, or yeah. when you were in the camera yeah. department? So you'd never been on a on a TV set, and that show has been going on since the nineteen sixties or something. Right? Yes, yeah, so, and I think they
0: had a break, and then they brought it back, and. And that was amazing as well. Like coming from shorts and art films to walk onto a set where like, you can just be like smoke there, rain there. Um, it just, <laughs> it was mind blowing. And also just. That such... wall
2: needs to be bleeding slime coming out of the ceiling over there. Yeah. Go. Bye.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And hold the doors. Right. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was just fascinating. And it, because it was this contained story, I think they gave me quite a lot of freedom with it. And the design and art department was so great to me. You know, I was like, can I get more practicals? Can they be flashing? Can they be doing this? And it, everyone's answer all the time was just yes, <laughs> which was amazing.
2: Something I don't know that I've ever asked anyone this, but I I think it's an interesting thing to talk about. Like, was it obvious that that was going to be your giant break, like that that was going to you were about to move to a, a different level? And if so, like, how did it emotionally hit you to suddenly be like, oh, okay, my career is about to open up and I'm about to have opportunities that I could have only dreamed about last week?
0: I think my approach always is not to think too far ahead and just mm. to deal with what's in hand and think about the immediate next thing. And I, I don't think I thought long and hard about, oh, I, I just kept thinking, don't mess this up and be brilliant and then I'll get another <laughs> shot at something else. I think it was more like that. <laughs> um, and and now for me, like the the thing that's been the most amazing thing, I guess, which feels like all of this, you know, was getting to do this project with Lenny was just like, it felt like. The natural time and place for it and I really wanted to go back to I love doing that that sort of big tv I've been doing in the last couple of years like dark materials and discovery of witches and vikings but being able to go back to intimate single camera storytelling has just been amazing as well like very authored kind of storytelling I've loved um as well so I guess it's all a journey and So
2: for a lot of the TV that you've worked on, there's a way it's done in America, and I have no idea if this is how it's done in the UK, but like the DP who shoots the pilot kind of sets the look and then other DPs, if they come on, have to carry that on. And looking through your filmography, how many of the shows did you come on and and set the look for other DPs or were you mostly working uh, on shows where the look had been set? And I'm just kind of interested in the challenges that are posed by both of those things, creating a template or sticking to somebody else's template.
0: I'd say pre two years ago, everything I did pretty much was following on from someone else in terms of TV. Mm -hmm. So, but also a lot of those shows, they let you play within that, certainly with the cinematography and direction, because they want you to move it on or take it somewhere fresh, or it's a third series that they like to develop the look a bit. So you're not always having to to match exactly um, mm. other episodes. And I, I think sometimes just by the design, costume, cast all being the same, it, it seems, it's so familiar to the audience that they don't always feel small shifts, so you can do that. Um, and I find with those projects as well, when the new team come on, kind of just trying to let, see how they want to do it, not trying to put too much on them and maybe just give them the rushes and see what they think and, Yeah. Well, in a lot
2: of the shows that you've done, and not all... But a lot of the shows you've done, you know, are, are things like Discovery of Witches and uh, and and His Dark Materials. Th- these are extremely extraordinarily stylized shows. But then, it, it you know, you go to something like Normal People, which is the style that you're hitting there is naturalism. It's not it's it's not as stylized as something like Discovery of Witches. Can you talk about working in that breadth of genre? Because I feel like you know, one of one of the pitfalls of the whole industry is you get pigeonholed as like, oh, you want someone who does like a a big historical epic, go to go to this person. Yes. You want someone who does sci-fi go to that person how do you avoid that that uh getting pigeonholed or stigmatized in a way where you're like okay you know 40 years from now you're still shooting you know doctor who yes that that would be not that that would be a bad thing but uh, it seems like you want to be working in different genres yeah i
0: I loved um chopping and changing uh, it's yeah i really love that never get bored but the other thing i think with my approach to lighting and, and i think with camera work as much as i can is like, I love realism, but obviously realism in the context of dark materials, for me, that turns into plausibility. Like, does it feel natural to that world? Even though that world is in space or underwater or totally fabricated, do I believe it? And I think that's what makes the work carry from that stylized work to more natural work. Yeah. Do, do Is it plausible within its setting? Yeah
2: kind of i'm also curious though as you're moving from one genre to another like if you're on one if you're on you know his dark materials and then you're going to go talk to somebody about working on normal people which you you already talked about how you how that job came about do you ever get the question of of well which genre do you prefer you know do you ever do you ever get that question looking at your reel looking at your website you know so many of these images are just outrageously striking and I wouldn't say stylized, but like really well composed, well lit in a, in a, in a very eye catching, interesting way, you know? So, do you ever find if you're talking to somebody about going on to a show that doesn't want the look that you're going for, how do you pitch yourself as someone who can do the look that they're going for if it's different?
0: I, I think, sort of, one of the main ways of doing that is even finding your older work that's closer to, because I think you're right in what you say. It's really easy to get known for a look or a style. And I guess trying to make sure your work that has an element of that is accessible to them. So say with normal people, I think because I'd done those features and Lenny seen them, that he probably thought it was in me to be able to do the more naturalistic lighting. Yeah, it's hard to convince someone with words about pictures, isn't it?
2: It is. It is. And I like the story that a, a DP friend of mine once told me was a, a commercial company had, had reached out to him about shooting an ice cream commercial. And they asked if he had any ice cream and he did. and it, But it was vanilla. And they called him back and said, do you have any chocolate? And I, I often think about, you know, it, it's not about whether you could do the job at all. It's about the imagination of the person who has to kind of pull the trigger because some somebody's got chocolate ice cream. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know.
0: And by the nature of being cinematographers, you know, you're always looking and learning and seeking and doing varied things and pulling from everywhere. So, oh, people are afraid, aren't they? If they haven't seen, <laughs> if they haven't seen it, they they're not sure. Maybe sensibility is a, a very important thing. And with if you can meet in terms of sensibility and and the thing and have common ground with the things you love, maybe that's something to help that process along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tricky one
2: you know, so much of your resume is television. Do you still want to do features? Is, do you see them as different? I mean, like I always think about like a TV show is something that's going to go on and on and on. Although in the UK, they have a tendency, they have always had a tendency to make short run series. So you could tell a full arc in a series. And in, in America, we've only recently gotten into doing that. Is that something that you want to do or are you very comfortable working within the the TV world?
0: Um, I really love like the single story. Like I'd love to do features. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I'd still like to dip in and out of TV because also TV now is so incredible. And um, I think even how like the TV audiences now are so open to different approaches. Yeah, TV, like normal people being a TV project is really interesting because as a film director... And doing a TV project in thirty-minute episodes based on a book, and even when I came to the project, I was like, "Wow, Lenny, and thirty-minute episodes, and you know, trying to figure out how it all goes together in your head." But tonally and stylistically now with television and, and in our case those 30 minute eps they really let us do something magical with telling mood and tone because in the 30 minutes you don't have to drive the plot that far you usually just have one or two events and, and then it yeah. does become about like movies about mood and tone and feel and so I think they're coming closer together at those things film and movies.
2: I think so too except TV the budgets are still lower but the expectations are the same yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. like they they want them to look like the highest budgeted movies.
0: Yeah and and the, also I think uh, the speed thing you know that the time TV's so quick.
2: Yeah can you talk about how you you tend to find yourself working with directors in terms of coming up with the coverage do the directors tend to come to you do you you know and 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 the question that i always ask of tv cinematographers is like if a guest director is on a show that you've already kind of been working in and they they're like i want to do this shot that's completely out of the box for that show do you is it your job to to say well here's how we would ordinarily do that or do you just follow their lead
0: well in That case, I think, um, you know, because it's easy to be in a show and things to get stuck in a way of doing things by the nature of going to the same spaces every day, having the same crew. And I think those things where directors come up with ideas that seem wildly out of the house style... There's always something in there, like if you question more and, you know, have a big, long conversation with them about what they're exactly getting at, there's often a way to to take the core of what they're trying to get and put it into your style. So I would mm-hmm. keep talking to them about that and because it's great for people to bring new things on those type of shows. And sorry, what was the first part of the question? Again? I'm
2: sorry. I have this horrible tendency to ask two part questions. No, the, the the first part was really just about like when you're working with TV directors, do you find a specific tendency in like how involved you are in kind of figuring out the, the way the scenes are covered and the approach, the visual approach to, to scenes?
0: Yeah. um, Well, that's an interesting one, because for me, like every director has I've had from you know, every type of situation. So someone that comes in and goes, I want a 24 there and that there and that there and that there yeah. to someone that comes in and goes, where do you, where should I get the actress to stand? <laughs> or, or like all of the ranges. And the thing I love is just visual storytelling. So ideally for me, if I had a dream project a bit like normal people is total collaboration and being able to hit a space and go collaborative it looks best this way and it's easier you know it's better if we start with this coverage and i love to be involved with the coverage i love operating the a camera it's one of my you know for me and that seems
2: like something that doesn't happen on television a lot is a lot of times the cinematographer gets stuck in video village but you you want to have your hands on the camera
0: yes and it really is like ideally i do it all the time but i understand on lots of projects you can't and if in the uk it's quite common for dps to change on every block so Mm -hmm. the having an operator is great for cast continuity um, and if the show is more tricksy or it requires a lot of steady cam then it's not, you know, or multi uh, on Vikings, it's very multicam. You know, I, I don't think I could be out at a camera or not on big days, certainly. And on that show, I am in a tent at Video Village. But I absolutely love like, but on Dark Materials, that was a big show with changing DOPs. But we all did a camera. Um, which was ah. wonderful on that and um, really loved it on that as well. And the continuity kind of came from the grips and the B-camera operator, the Steadicam, and um, when we left, they would stay on. So, yeah, it varies, but I love to be involved in the, the coverage, how the story's going to be told, understanding where the edit's going. And so much of that feeds into lighting, mood, the arc of yeah. the story. Yeah, I, I love being... Over that. Kind of a little,
2: little follow-up on that. As someone who, who prefers to operate your own camera, what are the benefits when you do find yourself in a situation where you have to be in Video Village because there's too many cameras and you have to work with, with other operators?
0: Loads of benefits. And like we're blessed in the UK at the moment where we've got amazing, amazing operators. And often I learn things from them. I'm pushed into a style I wouldn't naturally do. And when I did a lot of the block twos, you know, the later episodes of television, It was so such a good learning curve for me because the camera would end up in places, and I think, oh my god, how am I going to light it? Or the camera operators would come to me and say, "Susie, this shot's good, but if we can go this way with it, it's a way better shot." And my now my whole lighting rigs in shots, and it but it really made me think. With television, we can adapt with the lighting. We'll pull back a bit. We'll all work on our feet and make the better shot work. And that was such a huge education for me in terms of learning how to light quickly, light on my feet, um, adapt to situations where if you do go to set and you've rigged it and it's all ready to go this way, but suddenly something happens and it's all better that way you're able to pull that off if needs be. Because of that, you learn things, then you're like, oh, well, I didn't know the light was going to do that. I'm going to steal that for my, (laughs) you know, I learned so much from working with operators about lighting and about camera. Um, And obviously there's lots of things camera operators are better than me at.
4: (laughs) Um, (sighs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: Oh, that's awesome i think that that's a great place to end unless there's another oh uh, i had a question oh sorry alana has, has a go ahead
4: <laughs> um i just wanted to ask you about sherlock oh yeah another oh, I, I, I love, yeah. sherlock. I I love, love it. sherlock so much oh, oh, i love God. it Tell i me, love it as well <laughs> just i know you were nominated for an emmy yeah. for the episode one of the episodes did you only do one episode or I
0: only did one so like how that show um worked for our season. So it was the same director that hired me for the first Doctor Who, Douglas MacKinnon. Oh, wow. um, and then we did a few other things together. And then he, we were together somewhere doing something. I can't remember what. And he said, I've got an interview for Sherlock. And I was like, oh my God, I love that show. And And he said, oh, but they'll probably, the house uh, the no, our, the one he was interviewing for was a single film, let's say, single episode series, so 90 minutes long. And it's set in the Victorian times. You probably know it. Um, and he said, but they, you know, they'll probably want one of their house DOPs from last year to do it. And so I was like, oh, that's great. I'm so delighted you got the job and all that. And I was talk- we were talking a lot about Sherlock and I came home and I was like, Douglas got Sherlock, but you know, they'll probably need one of his DPs and I'm delighted for him and all the rest. And then uh, a few weeks later, the phone went and it was him and he said, look, it seems like the, the other DPs can't do it, they're not available. I think Fabian had gone somewhere and Neville had gone. I think Games of Thrones had started and they were off doing stuff. And he said, um, so I, I think I can get you in for an interview. And I was like, oh my God, really. And I loved the show. Like that was a show that, you know, all our family members would watch separately and then ring each other after to talk about. And so yeah, the interview was very because Douglas knew me well, I think it was more like a a nice meeting with the producers. And um And then we started doing it, and, yeah, it was amazing. And amazing to be, you know, because cinematographically, that show is such a place to play, you know, and come up with in-camera techniques to do stuff. And the fact that it was Victorian and the designer, you know, to reimagine his whole world that's now in Sherlock's head and in the 1800s was great fun. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It was funny because we had a lot of, like, we did have a reasonable amount of time to shoot it. But then quite a few things happened. Like I think did Benedict get nominated for an Oscar and Martin got a Golden Globe. And so they kept having to go off to stuff. And there's very little to shoot without them in those shows, you know? (laughs) And I think we started without them. And it was weird not having Benedict or Martin. And I remember the day they came back and we did the first kind of crew blocking or rehearsal of those two as Sherlock and Holmes and just being like It was amazing. It's a very lovely moment for the crew. Uh
4: And so tell me, like, what it was like then to be nominated for an Emmy for that particular...
0: Yeah, amazing. Sort of, yeah, I just... Wasn't really expecting it. And then uh, the phone went and I was very heavily pregnant at the Emmys. Like, I didn't think I'd be allowed to go. And um, I was shooting on Vikings. That was it. And I was getting to the end of being able to shoot. Like, I remember even getting to set on my last day and we had a sea day out in the boat, out in the Irish Sea, which is fairly... Rough. And I remember them looking at me thinking, how are we going to get her into the boat off the side of this pier? Because I was so pregnant. And I was like, oh, how, oh, how many months pregnant please? were you at that point? I'd say just gone eight eight months and a week or something. and No, 35 face, weeks. Shalada Bruce I Christensen. I'm I, just saying. <laughs> <yeah>. Shalada, <laughs> you're not our only extremely pregnant <laughs> yeah, DP. Yeah. But I was worried they were going to try and winch me into the boat in front of like, and we had Jonathan Reese Myers, so <laughs> there was paps there. And I was like, oh God. And then that night, Um, The Emmys were on Friday, I think, and that was on a Tuesday. And on the Tuesday night, I had to fly back to London, go to the doctors on Wednesday to get a certificate to say if I could fly and see if it was okay. And they said it was okay. And then I had to get a dress. And then my other child started school that day for the first time. And then that night we flew to America and I'd never been to LA before. Um, So the whole thing was surreal and wonderful and (laughs) mad. Um, but it was nice. There was quite a few other departments nominated. So like um, SFX were there, VFX were there, sound were there. So it, it was great to have a few friendly faces around. Like that made a massive difference. And and also what a way to see LA for the first time because you, you know it from, you know, I only knew it from films and then to be driving around. It was Magic Hour when we arrived and <laughs> we were just like... It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs>
2: all of LA is like the Emmys. Just remember that.
4: Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Sure. Especially all, the Valley. It's all like that. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, cool. So, uh, where can people find you online if they want to see your work?
0: Um, I've got a website, suzylavelle.com and, um, Are you,
2: are you on any of the social medias? Yeah. People, Instagram.
0: Um, um, I'm, I'm Cine on Instagram.
2: So everybody should uh, subscribe to you, uh, ch- check your work out there. Thank you so much for coming on board. It was really exciting to have you on.
0: Thank you.
2: So that was Susie Lavelle. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Susie. That was great. So Ilya, you know what time I believe it is? Because this is usually the thing you say right now.
3: Yeah, usually it's it's me. And you're right. It is time to pay those bills. Yay! So uh, we got to thank our lovely sponsor, Aperture, maker of fine uh, LED lighting equipment including their newest 300 series light called the 300x every week uh, they have a new light literally every week <laughs> they've been announcing a lot of stuff lately although some of the newer stuff is not going to be out for months and we'll talk about that in, in a few months time uh, i've already talked about the 300x on this show but it is now shipping it is now getting into people's hands and so for the people out there who are waiting patiently to get a hold of one of these cool lights it's very bright it's very powerful and the cool new f- feature is it can switch between a warm shade of white and a cool shade of white, which is pretty awesome. Cool, excellent. Yeah, uh, you know, for those people out there who uh, are severely against the idea of cutting gels, uh, congratulations. This this will fill <laughs> fill the bill. This will absolutely uh, get get it done for you. Uh, you, you can remove the uh, you know CTO or CTB from your life with this light. And uh, for those who do like using gels, well, you can still do that too. <laughs> you can still throw you do it both. On Get it extra warm or extra cool with your gel. Correct. And now, short ends. Uh, all right. So, so, Ben, I think we've reached the uh, famed uh, short end. Time famed of the and award winning. We, we Don't oh.
2: forget all those awards we won for, for our short end. Mm-hmm.
3: I, I, I didn't know we got any awards. <laughs> uh, I believe
2: we, uh, we didn't. I made that up. Um, okay. so so you're
3: a liar. That's the award. It's the <laughs> liar award. Right.
2: So, uh, so first off, I actually, uh, before I even get to my short end, I don't know how long this, how recently this was decided, but I just found out that Cinegear got canceled. Did Cinegear, yeah, it did. Did that get canceled a while ago and I just found out?
3: No, it just happened. Uh, first it got moved. It got moved to October and then yeah. uh, it got officially canceled haven't seen money return yet so yes i I prepaid for a booth and uh yes they they say that they'll be giving us uh, information in the coming weeks about all of our options and i said well what why is there an option shouldn't it just be a refund and they're say they have some sort of clause that they can deduct certain fees when they cancel the event which sounds like a a lot of bs to me so we'll, we'll, we'll yeah we'll see what uh we'll see what happens so with I,
2: that. I take it that means also that at hot rod cameras you won't be doing cine beer this year
3: no no cine beer that would actually be like in a uh, be about a little over a week from now so but no cine beer is not happening we're only appointments uh appointments here at the shop and um curbside pickup so we don't even really have our full operation back in swing of things so yeah we're, we're still figuring out our are taping on the floor to mark the six feet and doing all the ppe type of stuff oof
2: well hopefully we, we get that uh, vaccine next week we're not
3: getting a vaccine for a long time
2: <laughs> um so my actual short end uh because i don't I, I weirdly enough haven't been watching that much television for reasons i'm not going to go into on the podcast but i found yet another re- <laughs> your tv broke Reasonably new uh, podcast. Uh, I know it's two podcasts in a row, and I apologize. And I and I make a solemn oath that next week's short end will not be another podcast. But this one is really good. It's called Uncover Satanic Panic, and uh, Uncover. I don't I don't think this was one of my short ends, but believe me, it was one of my obsessions about two years ago. Uncover, which is a podcast done by the CBC, that's a Canadian Broadcast Company. They did one called Escaping Nexium, and if you haven't heard that. I mean, just go listen to it right now. You're obviously listening to a podcast. When this is over, go find Uncover Escaping Nexium. It's, I was on the edge of my seat. So, Satanic Panic, uh, because it is Canadian, it is about uh, a small uh, city in Canada in uh, 1992, in which it became believed that there were satanic ritual abuses happening to the children of the town. And the city went full Salem witch trials on these people. It is bonkers to think that in 1992, which was a minute ago, but it wasn't like 200 years ago, that... that Thinking they, back to 92, it, it might have been a little bit of the dark ages. It might have been. <laughs> a little bit. It's pre-internet. But uh, no, but in 1992, that intelligent lawmaking people in Canada chose to like throw people in jail... Because they believed, I mean, it literally is like reading uh, The Crucible. Uh, You know, these kids are basically making, making shit up and getting adults thrown in jail. And the thing is, like, on its face, the stuff obviously didn't happen. Now, as a child of the 80s and 90s, I do remember the satanic panic period. I remember when that was going on and people thought that there were, like, backwards mass satanic lyrics and heavy metal music and all kinds of insane garbage. And uh, it's it's a fine reminder that a lot of times a group of people might get carried away and do something that is not exactly rational on its face. I wonder how that might connect to today's events. What's your short end,
3: <laughs> I've never heard of people getting carried away. <laughs> uh, yes. Wow. OK. Um, my short end is actually about a new series that just started on Hulu called The Great. And The Great is is great. I, I, I firmly believe so. It is. Um, it's about Catherine the Great. It'd be very easy for this oh, cool. to be a, a show that that uh, does not have wide, broad appeal, but there's a certain element of humor that runs through it that helps to let's just say uh, mellow out sort of the uh, casual disregard for human life and uh, extreme sort of like uh, situations which uh, which otherwise would be horrible of like you know uh, a, a peasant class that is abused and taking uh, taken advantage of but you have a a leader who is uh, not Peter the Great it is his uh, his child who is just Peter <laughs> and so they don't have a superlative Everything to add to him, and this ends up being part of the, the magic of the show, is that, um, and I, I don't even want to give too much away here, but it's really, really beautifully shot. About half the episodes are shot by a, a client of Hot Rod Cameras named uh, John Brawley. and oh, sweet. Uh, yeah, and, and someone who's actually supposed to, to be on the show at some point. He is actually one of these people who is getting back to work right away here, so I think he's going to be booked up for the next several weeks, but uh, when he's done, yeah, hopefully we'll have him on the show and he can tell us about it, but the show has got uh, a lot of humor, and that humor makes everything sort of sort of work. And uh, I don't. I think it is one of those shows that you will do better to not know very much going in, except that it had very much has the flavor and spirit of something like The Favorite. If you've seen The Favorite, oh, and wow. if you enjoyed The Favorite, uh, it is the same writer of The Favorite. So uh-huh. it is. Uh, you, you know, you will you will get some sort of uh, similarities there, but it is its own thing. But yes, I think I binge the entire series in four days oh wow. and uh, and the uh, refrain that you hear from uh, the emperor uh, over and over again is huzzah and so I'm just gonna say huzzah yeah four days it was great
2: sweet well I'll uh, I'll see if that's a thing I can uh, actually dive into here because I, I could actually use some new TV
3: it, it's absolutely worth your time and uh, you'll know right away if you are not in by episode two don't bother but uh, I think that you will be
2: cool well thank you very much. So Ilya, where can people find you online if they would like to find you right now? Because they can't like go to Hot Rod Cameras and rudely demand that you give them a T-shirt right now because of no. social distancing.
3: They, they they could do a curbside T-shirt. That's possible. They come you'd by. Have to, like you'd have to call.
2: Like bring yeah. some plastic salad tongs and just kind <laughs> of hand it to them like it's, you know.
3: We actually have a, a very nice. Uh, we have a couple of milk crates. One's got red around the top, which would be for non-sanitized things and then we have one that's black around the top which is for all sanitized things and we actually sanitize all the stuff that we uh, sell to people before they they take it away we do a wipe down with clorox wipes i think you should
2: get like a robot like the one they tried to use to decontaminate uh chernobyl in in the miniseries
3: (laughs) uh that would be awesome but sadly hot rod cameras cannot afford the uh chernobyl robot so support
2: hot rod cameras so we can get you a chernobyl robot one of these days
3: Thanks. I really hope to never need a Chernobyl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Yeah. So good, uh, good real times. quick,
2: everybody, you can find me at BenrockOnline.com and maybe one day Benrock.com, but not currently.
3: This would be a good time to contact them, though. You really should.
2: I no, I, I tried. I, I just I did like less than a week ago. I reached out to the people who own Benrock.com because they're not using it. They're not using it. And they're a boat company. I'll even sign a waiver saying I promise to never sell any boats. Because I think I never will. I'm, unless my life takes a radical shift, I'm never going to own a boat, never going to sell
3: a boat. Anyway. Yeah, yeah I, I think you're safe. Let, let's, I, thank, let, let's thank some people. Let's do it. So first off, who would you like to thank? Uh, let's thank
2: our producer, Alana Cody. Thank you so much, Alana. Yeah, we, we're, we're on a pretty good... Uh, we, we've, we've been releasing a new episode every week for well over a year now, haven't
3: we? We, we have. Yeah, it's, it's going well.
2: That is all Alana's doing. If it were up to you and me, we'd put out a new episode every three months. <laughs> it's well, so
3: true. I, w- I wouldn't try to do it every three months, but that's probably the reality. Of that would, it, that would sure. be
2: how it would turn out. Uh, we also need to thank our fine editor, Ben Katz. Ben Katz, who, uh, who makes us sound like less imbeciles than we actually are, and hopefully saves you at home many minutes of us uh, goofing off and saying nothing of any use to you.
3: There's a few for sure.
2: So. <laughs> Oof. And lastly, as always, we'd love to thank Kaze Alatrachi who is in all likelihood never going to hear this episode, but Kaze, nope. you're, you're a fine musician, and go find his work at musicbykaze.com and uh, send him a message, email him, and, and, and just tell him literally anything. Just tell him, hey, heard you on the Cinematography Podcast, we think you're good.
3: Or I like pie, you know, whatever. Just, you know, tell him something, anything. Tell him what matter. kind
2: of pie you like, if you, especially if it's a really weird kind of pie
3: like uh, a savory pie like a chocolate sab- rhubarb yeah, yeah. Mm.
2: chocolate r- oh
3: god it's disgusting <laughs> all right uh. <laughs> on, on that lovely note we'll see you next week yes see you next week
1: this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.